0: The Watch is the latest and the greatest in pop culture from best friends Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. Join them as they discuss TV, movies, music, and much more. Check out The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles And your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24 seven access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details.
1: Hey, welcome back everybody. This is Larry Wilmore and you are listening to Black the Air. I appreciate you choosing this podcast podcast where we talk about stuff that Larry Wilmore is interested in, whether it's politics, it could be sports, it could be culture, racism, sexism, who knows, sometimes even magic tricks. And today's show falls under my favorite hobby in the world, and that that is the world of magic. I promise you guys we would do something like this. And by the way, this is not the only podcast that I'm going to do in magic. I have another one coming up that I'm very excited about too. But first... Uh, We have Josh Jay, who's one of the most talented people in magic in the world. He has a book called How Magicians Think. Ooh, very provocative. Very interesting. I like stuff like this. If you know me, you know, I I could talk philosophy and stuff like this like all night long with my friends. It's just a fun thing. But How uh, Magicians Think is very, very provocative about deception, about fooling, and the art of magic itself. So Josh Jay, who has uh, devoted most of his life to this art, drops in and shows us a couple of magic tricks. So I'll be dropping a couple of these on Twitter, uh, Instagram, maybe just having Josh out there fooling us. And he's full pen and teller, by the way. So more of this type of stuff coming up, you guys. I love doing magic, something I love doing all the time. Um, I don't have a lot of stuff to talk about today. I've been kind of busy this week just got a lot of work to do. But you know, here's what caught my eye though. The whole COVID uh, thing, which we're all exhausted about, the vaccine situation out there is so fascinating to me. As you know, I got the vaccine. I think we all should get vaccinated. It'd be great if we did more as a country to help some of these countries that need these vaccinations, get them out there. That's why I can't, I honestly can't believe why people won't get vaccinated, you know, but you know, what am I going to do? So I think, you know, not only vaccinations, but there's some more therapeutic stuff that's coming out that hopefully can get us out of this. But what I find interesting is how the NBA is reacting to this. It's real interesting guys. Cause for one reason, I want to know what's going on with the NBA. It's very, very interesting. And let me, let me just point out a couple of, uh, Uh, different ways that we approach things, which right now, most of the distinct ways that we do things are divided into right and left, Democrat, Republican, liberal, and conservative. So I'm going to use that kind of hat to put things in. So the right and the left, let's talk about that. So, and these are broad generalizations. They're not definitions. They're really just broad generalizations, just so we have a chance to discuss this. So you don't come out to me like, Larry, that's not really the, what it? Okay, guys, this is just for the purpose of discussion. Okay, so broadly, in my mind, broadly, the left tends to focus more on the group. You know, what is best for the group is best for me as an individual. That's why they love focusing on programs that the government sponsors, that type of thing. You know, let's do this, uh, let's raise taxes because what's good for this big group of us is good for us as people. You know, so you always hear people on the left arguing that, well, I'm doing this. Yeah, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it because it's good for all of us, blah, blah, blah. The right, on the other hand, and once again, generalizations, to me, mostly focuses on the individual and the liberty of individual and what is when you protect that individual liberty, you are, in fact, doing what is best for the group. It is the protection of that liberty that is best for the group. Like I said, these are generalizations. That's why most of their arguments are about well, here's what's best for me. Um, This is what my company needs. Why are you doing this to this person? You're hurting uh, small businesses, the individual thing, and protecting the individual liberty side of that argument. Once again, generalizations, but it's kind of where these sides kind of operate out of a lot. You know, it it gets flipped, as I pointed out before in abortion, they're kind of flipped, those positions, now the left in abortion is more interested in the liberty of that individual, being the woman, and controlling her own body. And and the right gets more into what is best for society. We shouldn't be, uh, the government should come in and protect the fetus. that can't protect itself. So it gets flipped a little there, and I've talked about that, and that's my way of looking at things. But here's what's interesting about the NBA. So the NBA mainly has operated from the left especially when it came to, like, virtue signaling, when it came to racial things, you know? Just the whole thing last year after the George Floyd thing, you know, NBA and other sports, you know, groups, of course, but out there saying we need to end racism, you know, Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, blah. And this isn't about me. This is about all of us. We need to all rethink our relationship to race and all this stuff, and we all need to do better. And we're putting out a message there we feel it is our duty to put a message to the world to try to help this situation. You know, it was it's a group thing that they're talking about. They're saying what is better for the group is better for us as individuals, right? Which I got no problem with, you know, good for them. But when it comes to COVID, they have switched. <laughs> They've left a bit, you know, and it's interesting that a lot of players are doing this, whether it's LeBron, stream Draymond Green, Kyrie Irving couple other players have put out videos and they all are kind of operating out of the same type of thing. They're saying, look, I'm making this individual choice for myself. I feel, you know, everybody has to make this choice for themselves. This is a private health decision. I mean, I got the vaccine. If you want to do it, then it's good for you. But if someone else doesn't want to, then I get it, you know, but I think we should make the decision. Uh, I think Draymond Green said, I'm not going to tell another player that they got to do this. You know, they got to make that decision for themselves. Fascinating. Because that is a position that the right takes. That is a conservative position. You know, the individual right that you have, that liberty to make your own decision in the world, free of the government telling you what to do, or for a sports organization telling you what to do when it comes to your own body, putting something in it, vaccine, whatever, that decision is up to you. It should not be, people shouldn't bully you about it or try to coerce you and convince you. Interesting, interesting, interesting. What's going on, NBA? How did you guys become conservative? How did this happen? Why is COVID making you conservative? This is fascinating to me because it could easily be the other way around. LeBron James admitted that he was vaccinated, but he said he did it for because it was right for him and it was right for his family. But he could flip that around and say, look, yo, I want to speak. Let me speak to the black community first. We need to get vaccinated. You know, COVID is killing Black people at an unprecedented rate. Many of us are not vaccinated because we're scared of it or whatever. I'm LeBron James. My body is very important. I try to stay healthy. And I got the vaccine, you know, because I want to do what I think is best, you know, and I think we should all get it. He could easily have said that. He's, he has said that in ter- with the racial issues and other issues. He has been an advocate for all, you know. But now, and I'm not picking on LeBron. I, you know, love LeBron. You know, I'm not criticizing this as he should do this instead of that. I'm only observing it as it's interesting. Why is this happening with COVID? It's flipped. I expect Kyrie Irving, (laughs) for those of you that follow basketball, I expect for Kyrie Irving, this is a guy who thought the world was flat. You know, once again, not a criticism of the position. I just find it interesting, you know. And by the way, uh covid seems more in our reach to find a cure for than racism does you know if anything if anything you would think they'd be using their platform to encourage people to do this because it's something that i feel we can accomplish racism seems a little harder to accomplish could you imagine if there's a vaccine for racism? If there were a vaccine for racism, how many players would we say, look, y'all gotta get y'all gotta get vaccinated now? <laughs> I mean, I wonder how many people would get vaccinated if there was a vaccination for racism. That's an interesting question. Some of you motherfuckers are gonna need some boosters, like regular boosters, if that's the case. Oh man. It is interesting how dynamics of people have changed with COVID. You know, even the, the government, I feel like can't figure out where it's standing on this. It's, it's evolved over time and may evolve again. At first, like Joe Biden said, look, I don't believe in government mandates. I don't even have the, I don't have the authority to issue a government mandate about COVID. Six months later, (laughs) government mandates about COVID. Sorry, motherfuckers. (laughs) Now you got to get it. And for a while, it was carrot and stick. You know, first it was carrot. You know, they were like, look, we can't tell you guys to get COVID. But how about this? If you get COVID, you can win the lottery. Like, I think somebody won a million dollars for fucking getting a shot for getting COVID. I got <laughs> nothing, you guys. They were getting the lottery for getting COVID. And in, a, in like three months time. All right. If you don't get COVID, you're going to get fired. All right. Happy now, motherfucker? You could have won a million dollars. Now I'm gonna fire your ass. That's that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it happened so fast, too. It went from carrot to stick in a like blazing amount of time. You could win the lottery to your ass is getting fired. So I I understand why a lot of people's heads are dizzy right now with some of this. Some people are not. I try to maintain <laughs> my own sanity. I just want to get through this shit. You know, I personally feel that we're going to have to deal with COVID for a long time. You know, somebody said five more years. I didn't want to hear that. Five more fucking years. I don't think I can deal with it for five more years, but we may have to, man, this shit is nefarious. And I think our best tool is to learn to live with it. How can we live with it? I'm not a big fan of mandates, you know, like, to me, it doesn't make sense that you have to be vaccinated to go into a grocery store. We we know how to do this. You know, I like putting a mandate for a mask, you know, but to have to show a vaccination for everywhere you go just doesn't make sense to me. Some places make more sense than others. You know, I don't have as much of a problem with private mandates, you know, business and that type of stuff. But the big government stuff, I have a moral problem with, but I'm not here to really talk about that because that's more philosophical anyway. But I will say this. Guys, if you if you're listening to me and you have not been vaccinated, you should get vaccinated for covid. You really should. It will help protect you against this stupid virus. Please, please, please. But understand if for whatever reasons you have you don't want to get vaccinated, I'm not going to attack you. I'm not going to bully you. I'm going to try to keep convincing you, you know, that this is the right thing to do. And I just think it'll it'll help us uh deal with this thing in a you know, in a better world. As you know, I lost my brother to COVID. You know, I still deal with the ramifications of that every day. Um, and, you know, it's just not easy, guys. It's not easy. But at the same time, there's I feel there's still a lot of things we don't know about this disease. The way it mutates is one of it. The various mutations, which somehow are, you know, could care less about the vaccinations because it's kind of getting around them, like the whole Delta thing and Lambda and some of this other stuff. But, you know, that's not for me to figure out. But I will say this from the center of the hours i like to be. As citizens, when considering what is important to you as an individual in this matter, your individual liberty, which I do believe is important to protect, I think you should consider that in this case of COVID, what is best for the group what is best for society actually is one of the best ways to protect your your liberty, in this case, in the United States of America. It is not quite a both sides argument, but um, I think you can be comfortable, no matter which side you're on, by actually getting the vaccine, you know? I don't think there's anything lost. Uh, in doing that. So anyhow, that's all I got to say. It's interesting about the NBA. It'll be interesting to see if they, uh, if they turn on this or whatever, because, and they actually are instituting mandates in the NBA, which is kind of goes against what's being put out there too, when they're talking about personal choice. But at the same time, a lot of these players won't be able to play, you know, in some of these stadiums where you have to be vaccinated to play. Very confusing. All right, you guys, that's all I got for this week. Just some more food for thought. Stick around. Because uh, coming up next, we got Josh Jade telling us how magicians think.
2: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Majorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Welcome
1: back, everybody. It's October, it's trick or treat time, and we got a little bit of both today. (laughs) Um, As you guys have told you, I love magic, have been since um, I've been a kid, and uh, we're talking to someone who is, I think, was doing magic in the womb. Is This is as long as this person's been doing it. But he, from the minute he hit the scene, he's been one of the most uh, brilliant and persistent just minds on magic and just uh, presenters and breaker downs. And he hosts seminars around the world. He's performed for presidents. He's, you know, fool pen and teller. He's been everywhere, you guys. But now, this is great. He has a book called How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. He's the great Joshua J. Josh,
3: welcome to Black on the Air. Thanks for being here with me. <laughs>
1: <Do> <laughs> no, no, it's other, Sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, Mistakes are kept on this show, Josh. Oh, it doesn't all right. matter. Well, yes. <laughs> Josh imagines that he's hosting something right now because that's what he does. You know? That's right. So, I'm,
3: I'm just a little confused. Remember, I just... Yes, you're the guest,
1: Josh. This is all about you. We're going to speak about you.
3: I'm just not used to it. Um, thanks for having me. I've admired you from afar and I oh, got I to interview that. you on stage a few years ago. That's right. I admire the fact that you bring your knowledge of acting and presenting and being present with an audience to yeah. magic and people who don't know, you know, there are a lot of people who have a little interest in magic yeah. and they like it a little bit, but that's right. not you. You don't, you're not some like amateur who's a hack <laughs> yeah. and, and doing it for fun. And, right. and because you're public, you really understand the art, you work yeah. at it, you have great techniques. So it's an honor oh, to chat thanks, with you. Yeah. Yes. Um,
1: as they say in golf, you know, I'm sneaky long. You know, is an that expression. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like people don't. I remember talking. This is this is in, a little inside magic talk before I get started, guys. So I, I first time I met Richard Kaufman, it was one of those things where I was hanging out with David Regal, You know, uh, big in the world of magic. And you guys, uh, for those of you that don't know, Richard Kaufman is like uh, it's been behind some of the greatest books you know, of all time that have been out there in magic, you know, so these are two great minds and I'm just my friend's friend, you know, hanging out and, you know, Richard, yeah, nice to meet you and everything. And then I show him this trick I've been working on for years, literally. It was a variation of the invisible palm uh, cards, but I had done it with a switch at the end, you know, and it just completely knocked his socks off instant. Like, Oh my God. (laughs) And to get that from somebody like that. See, I love doing that. I love sneaking up on people with magic and that kind of stuff. So
3: it's a great thing when you can knock the socks out of somebody who thinks they know yes. magic. Right. You know, that's, I think that's part of what appeals about Penn and Teller's show fool us yes. is that, you know, it's this, it's such a weird premise. It's such a yeah. weird premise that like it matters whether you fool Penn and Teller or not, which yes. is like such an arbitrary thing. And I've talked with the two of them about it. Yeah, But it is that voyeuristic thing where people want to know, can you fool an expert? That's what they want. They know they're going to get fooled, but can you fool an expert?
1: One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, I was intrigued just by your title, you know, because there's something philosophical about magic. It's social, it's philosophical, it's intriguing. There's a lot of aspects to it that just go beyond a trick. And... In in this book, which is really fun to read, you guys, whether you're a magician or not, because there, I find there are personal moments in here. There are, you know, historical things in it. Yeah, you know, of course. There are, you know, professional. Uh, bits in it, but what's interesting are the philosophical bits in it too. You know, and th- let me just ask: Is what were you thinking behind this book? Was, did this start as some things you had written and tried, wanted to put it all together in a sense, or what was your thinking behind putting this out?
3: Yeah, the, the origin story of how magicians think is is really two separate things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. The first one is I used to work cruise ships, yes. and when you used to work <laughs> cruise ships, you would have to Ugh. sit with the guests. And various nights, like Tuesday night is, you know, magician gets paired at an eight top table with randos, right? And so those those dinners were like Groundhog's Day because every single question was just a repeat. And what I started to realize is people have the same core curiosities about magic. What were the questions? Do you ever mess up on stage? Yeah. (laughs) Who's the best magician of all time? Was Houdini really as good as everybody says, or was he just popular? And I realized that, that there are two answers to questions like that. There are the quick witty answers, like, you know, well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Right. But then there are actually the real fascinating answers. And over the course of a two hour meal, you get to tell the real answers, not just the smart ass answers. And people loved it. They they really, they care about magic and they didn't know. So for one Mm. thing, I wanted to write the book that answered those questions. And then the other event that happened to me was, you know, I'm sure, you know, I wrote this book in 2008, which is like my version of a beginner's book in magic. It's tricks. It's how to get started in magic. Yes. It was my senior thesis out of school. And I was so weirded out because people would go, oh, my brother's cousin's uncle loves magic. He goes to every magic show. So I bought him your book. And I would think to myself, what a weird thing that just because somebody loves magic, people automatically assume they want to be a magician. Mm-hmm. I I love music. I can't play an instrument. I have no desire to <laughs> right, learn. Right. right? I love movies. Right. I'm not going to be an actor. Like, there's a space to love magic, but not want to do it. And there does not exist a book that celebrates magic. So I wanted to write that book. That's what I did.
1: That's very fascinating. Let's just for the audience, let's talk about your journey. What was the first trick that you saw? And why do you think it had such an indelible effect in you? Because the story of most magicians, and it's my story too, is you saw something usually at a young age, and it's a, Saul of Tarsus moment, you're knocked off the right. horse and your life has changed forever, <laughs> never to return to be the same.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, um, I can pinpoint it exactly. And it's not too far off of probably your moment, which I'd be curious right. about what it was specifically. Sure. But this will mean something to you. I don't know if it'll mean something to your listeners. Um, I was seven years old mm-hmm. and my dad gave me a deck of cards and said, I want you to... Deal what you think are the red cards here and the black cards here. He did a trick for me, for those who are not in magic called out of this world. Yeah. And it's one of the seminal card tricks of the 20th century. It's a brilliant card trick. It happens to be easy to do. He wasn't a magician. He was a dentist, Uh but he did some magic.
1: That's a pretty, I was going to say, that's a pretty sophisticated trick
3: for just the oh, it good, He was a good amateur, as I, yeah. would, I would discover. But, so <laughs> yes. he did it for me, uh-huh. and he didn't tell me how it was done. So yeah. here's, here's the story, and this has relevance to, to this book and to anybody listening who loves magic. So he does this trick to me, and I'm stunned. Uh-huh. I am totally astonished, overwhelmed, cannot believe it. I turn yeah. over the packets after I'm dealing this deck face down and I mm-hmm. have somehow separated the cards red and black. And I don't know how I did it.
0: Right. I
3: go down to my room and I tear up two decks of cards and I'm dealing packets. And, and he wouldn't, he coins. wouldn't tell you
1: how it was done.
3: Oh, he wouldn't tell. Me. I mean, at that point right. I'm just an audience, right? <laughs> and, trick. and I'm right. shuffling decks of cards together uh-huh. and making charts. And I figure out this damn trick. I figure wow. out how it's done. Yeah. And then I go back upstairs the family room and I slap a deck of cards on the table and I say, now you pick it up and you deal the red cards here and the black cards here. And here's what I've come to believe, my armchair psychologist though to myself, Uh the act of all of those things together is the embodiment of magic. So the first thing is seeing it as an audience member.
1: Uh The experience of it, right.
3: The second part, still my favorite to this day, what I was doing before our call just now, the engineering of magic, the yes. thinking through, putting yes. it together, Ugh. the problem-solving Sherlock Holmes part of it. Yes. That's, that's the second part of that circle. Awesome. Yes. And then the last part is how I spent the last 20 years of my life, which is performing it and being on the other side yes. of Alice's mirror, right? Right. And it's all three of those things that make this career so fascinating. I get to enjoy magic and see it and love it and be fooled by it. There's nothing better. You know that. Yes. And then I get to engineer original tricks and figure out how things work and make guesses and fall on my face and sometimes succeed. Mm -hmm. And then I get to perform it. And that's, that's kind of the origin story.
1: Yeah. It really is in like, you get to be Thomas Edison all the time, you know, (laughs) it's how it feels. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I have almost the exact same origin story. It's very similar. I was at one of the, they were called Indian Y guy, uh, uh, meetings was when I was a kid, it celebrated Native Americans and, and you, you went with your dad and that type of thing. And, and you kind of celebrate their culture and stuff like I was here in California. And uh, it was kind of like Cub Scouts. It was that type okay. of thing, you know, you'd have meeting. And when I think about it now, I said, that was actually kind of cool. Kind of celebrated that culture. A bit. But, uh and I remember a guy came in and he, he took a piece of rope and he cut it in half, took some scissors and he tied a knot and he, he grabbed the knot and he slid it down uh-huh. to the other side of the rope. And then he took it off and threw it away. And I'm like, what? And I was seven years old. I was the exact same age. same age. My brain exploded. I'm like, what did I just watch? You know, I went home and I, you know, found, I think, some, all I had was string. I didn't have that kind of rope. And I just worked on it, worked on, it, worked on it until I figured out how it was done, or my own version of it. And then I did the same. I saw Cups and Balls on TV. There was this guy named Marshall Brodine who used to sell uh, TV course, magic cards. And He's the and godfather
3: the, of selling magic on TV, which is not a dig. It's, a, it's how a
1: lot of kids like me got into magic, too. right? And the biggest commercial at the time, TV magic cards was the biggest, but then he also yeah. did TV magic cups and balls, you know? And I watched that thing and I figured out my own version of it and fooled my parents with it. And they bought me a magic set for Christmas. You know?
3: Yeah. And, and what's amazing to me about when I hear these origins, cause you're right. All these origin stories are basically the same. It might be yeah. different tricks, different ages, but it's like, you see an amazing trick and you want to be yeah. able to do it. Magicians have always said that we get into magic For different reasons. And Mm -hmm. I don't believe that's true. As I say in in the book, I think we all get into magic for basically the same reason, but we stay in magic for different reasons. In other words, like I think all of us get into magic because we're amazed and we want to be able to do something our friends can't do, or we want to be able to impress Mm -hmm. girls, or we want to be able to fool our parents or whatever it is. It's it's basically in that same lane. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, the reason kids largely get out of magic around age 12 or 13 is because they get into other things. It's unfulfilling if all yeah. you want to do is fool your friends. That that right. that wears off. It wears after, off after a while. Yeah. And so the really interesting question is the one nobody ever asks, which is, why do those of us who stay, stay?
1: And why did you stay?
3: You know, for me, I think it became, it's like you said with the, the Thomas Edison thing. Yeah. It, it, it became much more of a personal thing. Like I can't really put it into words. I try in the book, in my favorite chapter of the book, which is on how do magicians create magic, mm-hmm. but there is just truly nothing like the aha Eureka moment of sitting at this desk in my mm-hmm. apartment And struggling with a problem and then realizing, oh, wait a second, I've been doing it
0: backwards. What if Mm. I
3: start with the aces here and this here, and then I end with this and this will be, and now it works perfectly and it's the opener and comes in this way. That personal journey is so much more fulfilling than the be the life of the party, fool your friends, you know, Mm -hmm. get the standing ovation thing that just gets to be sort of hollow and and i I imagine I'd be so interested to know from your listeners like is that the same in other crafts you know the people who get into music do, do they transition I think it's a
1: I think both of those things can be true. I think they here's what I learned but since I'm a writer performer, you know i've like when I did stand-up, I had to write my act, you know, and you know i when I wanted to be an actor intelligent, I realized you know I'm going to have to write kind of a path for myself because who I am doesn't quite exist in television. You know, I'm not from the ghetto, you know, I don't, right. you know, I'm not fast talking ex con you know, that type, you know. And so I had to carve my own way, but I had to acknowledge like there were comedians who people who were supply jokes, they weren't creators like I was. And I realized not everybody operates out of the same system. And with, what I, what I found was interesting is that I operate, out of his desire to express, you know, like it's the expression that's important to me. So the, the creation of a joke is almost more important than the reaction from the joke, you know, because like yes, the laugh is exactly almost like, that. when I get the laugh, it's almost like, of course it's funny. That's why right. I worked on it so hard, you know, <laughs> it almost feels like that and it's satisfying because I'm a creator, but here's what I learned. There are people who are the opposite the creation of the joke is meaningless to them. The Only the reaction is important. Mm-hmm. And they live off that reaction. And when the reaction isn't there, it diminishes them. And and they're enlarged or diminished by the reaction. I am. I have no connection to the reaction at all. The reaction is nice. Yeah. But for me, it's the invention that fuels me. If I'm not inventing, I feel diminished.
3: What you know? are describing is the most eloquent way I think I've heard it outside of magic yeah. for what i'm explaining yes it's exactly yes. that and there are magicians and we know them yes. because they're the ones on tv and they, they perform they, they buy it you want to hire guys like you and me to design their illusions exactly. for them and do it and that's fine but for me it's like you know the funny part about what you're saying is like you when people find it funny and you're like yeah i know it's funny it's
1: like, <laughs> yeah. well it's um, not that arrogant but it's like right your your reaction is what i was anticipating and right it fulfills the thing that I was working on. So, whew, you know, it's like, thank God. Yeah.
3: How about this for, yes. you know, a little arrogance. It's like, I know that I work so hard on these things, but sometimes when it doesn't quite work out, I want to like rationalize it to the audience and be like, let me explain to you why that's so <laughs> much better than right. the stuff you've been watching. Like this yes. magic trick has full circle comebacks. It ta- taps back to something before it plays on your expectations. You didn't appreciate how good that, you know, yeah. you and of course, that's the great failures. Like sometimes yes. no matter how clever and unusual and offbeat right. and original something is, if it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit. And you got to leave it on the
0: cutting room floor. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
1: This sounds simple, but let's talk about what actually is magic. Like like when we think of magic, like what actually happens in a person's
3: brain that makes something magic? Yeah. I mean... Of course, every magician has a different definition of that. And there is no right or North Star or anything of that nature. I mean, to me, the best definition of magic is still tellers. And he is one of the simplest. It's one sentence is magic is the difference between what you see and what you know. It's it's that pitting between your logic and your eyes. And you know, something's not possible, but yet it's happening just the same. And you know, people often sort of say, "Well, here's your book. You know, how much does it think?" It says misdirection, deception, and why magic matters. Why does magic matter? Which is sort of a loaded question because, like, I can't tell you why magic matters for every person. But magic, I think, fulfills a role that is so important in 2021, and more important in 2021 than 2010 or 2015, because as technology improves, we are increasingly in a world where Answers are cheap. Solutions are cheap. Secrets are cheap. Yeah. And magic is like one of the few things that when it's done beautifully, you can't look it up. You can't just Google it on your phone. You can't just find it online. You can't do a quick YouTube tutorial and learn it. There are things you can learn on YouTube. There are, and magic, some, but
1: the, there are some magic. There is some magic that is exposed in those. Of outlets. course. And yes, that's a whole tricks. other
3: issue in which technology is playing a role. But I'm saying with mm-hmm. really good magic. You know, if, if, yeah. if you and I are out hanging out and I see an opportunity to use my environment and do yes. something, it's so arresting that it is that metaphorical reminder that, oh, yeah, it's okay to live in mystery. It's okay to live mm-hmm. with a question mark instead of a period or an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. And that's at the core of it why magic matters. And for some people they can't. They just cannot live with not knowing. But
1: Yeah. I wonder if technology, you know, over the years has made people uh colder to imagination, you know, or has desensitized them to Im- imagination. And when magic is able to wake that up sometimes like, Oh yes, I have an imagination, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean,
3: Mm -hmm. I think technology poses more of a threat than sometimes even we magicians recognize. Like I'll give you an example and it's a little inside baseball, but I do this trick, my version of a trick called printing, which Mm -hmm. is a version of wild card. It's a trick for anybody who's not a magician in which you take like a couple playing cards And you show one card and Uh you take another card and you touch it to one card and you print a facsimile on the card. Yeah. And it's a beautiful trick. And in the version that I do, I print against the pattern on my shirt and against my lips and I go crazy with it. And it used to, when I came up with this in the early 2000s, it used to get screams, like David Blaine level people jumping around the room, can't believe it's real. Uh And then like, if you graph the reactions, they started to like, peak and go down to the point where I started to say, I can't do that. And so I would, I would like ask the audience, like, what's wrong? with it something you don't like? Why aren't you reacting? Right. What's, what is happening? I'm having a yeah. crisis. And they would say, well, I just assume it's that paper that prints. Because technology is so advanced now. We can mm. do so much with our phones that it's no longer beyond the pale of, of yeah. belief that a paper could touch a substance and recreate that paper. Now it happens to not exist, right. but it's a trick that truly got laughed by technology. And I wow. take it out of my show.
1: Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Uh, and uh, what, so what is it that, let's talk about what surprise means in magic and why surprise is so important. Because um, I talk about when I, I teach writing and that type of thing and mentor young writers, and I talk about words like surprise and shock, and I'll give you my definitions of those in the writing sense, because some of it has an application to magic too. Like, when I talk about the difference, I, I ask them, what is the difference between surprise and shock in writing? You know, and many times writers don't consider that there could be a distinction. And I say, well, I've created my own distinctions. I'm not saying these are the definitions. I've created these distinctions so I personally can get clarity over what I'm writing. That's the purpose of it. So don't think of this as, yes, this is what it is. No, this is the definition I've given myself. So when I'm writing, I know I'm more in control of what I'm doing. Here, wow. You know? And
3: what is, I'm so curious. So, what is the difference? Yes. Yeah, so these are the distinctions
1: shock. that I've come up with. So like, and here's the thing. When I ask the question, I say, what is the difference between surprise and shock? They usually can't give me a satisfying thing, but they say, well, Shock is more surprising. I said, but you can't, there's no such thing as a big surprise, you know? <laughs> you yeah. Know? You know, and so there hasn't been that That. So here's here's the definition I've come up with. They're both unexpected events, okay? The difference is, I'll talk about shock first. So shock's purpose is unexpected, but its purpose is to confuse you. And its purpose is for you to know less about the circumstances around it. Wow. And it kind of removes you emotionally from something and you're in a confused state it's used a lot in horror films and that type of thing when shock happens you go whoa what just happened you know and right. you're you're disconnected from something the effect of shock lessens over time because it's a non-emotional event you know where you're you're disconnected so when you see the same shock moment it doesn't have the same effect over time it lessens over time because it's it's Purpose is to confuse you and disconnect you. That's what shock does. It's unexpected, but its purpose is for you to know less about what's going on. Surprise also is unexpected. But when surprise happens, the purpose of surprise is to deepen your understanding of something. Wow. Is is to make you more connected to something, but in an unexpected way. And the effect of surprise always it always feels the same every single time because it's a human experience that it is pulling you into. And so when you know these things as a writer, you realize, like, what jokes are just unexpected things that are funny but it doesn't do anything, and what jokes deepen our understanding of character but are also unexpected. So now you have more, and the, that was my purpose of coming for it. So writers know why is this joke good and this isn't? We laughed at both of them, yes, but I know more about the character from this joke and I know less from this joke. Unless we were writing a show where those kind of shock jokes are the types of jokes for the form of that show, where like Family Guy, jokes, they're shock jokes all the time because we don't right. know more about those characters. They're left turns, you know? So, So knowing that, you have control over that form, you know? So, and I said, I'll give you an example. So like, uh, if you take, um, what is the Christmas movie, Jimmy Stewart, (laughs) my brain is Oh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, okay. So at the end of that movie, like I cry every time I see at the end of the movie. I'm always emotional. Incredible. Because the unexpected happens where the people come in and they give him money, and when they do that, it deepens my understanding of his relationship to those people, and it makes me emotional every time. Now, if someone had come in at the end of the movie and shot Jimmy Stewart, I would have went, "Whoa!" I might, I might have cried of that. It would have been so sad. But it would have. I wouldn't have understood it. It would have. I, I. It would have removed me from my experience as that character. Would have had an effect, but it wouldn't have been a powerful over time, you know?
3: Yeah, I think what you're talking about comes down to justification, justification of the surprise. And um, William Goldman, the the screenwriter, he put it this way. He says, you have to surprise the audience, but in an expected way. So in magic, that means that it's really easy at the end of any trick to produce a bowling pin and then a <laughs> banana. <laughs> why are you producing a bowling pin? And why a banana? And why in that order? It's a right. surprise, but it's shock. It's what you're talking about. It's shock. Yes, it's not a connected. The surprise would be you produce the banana. But wait a minute. When you peel back that banana, inside is a dollar bill. Because we had a dollar bill at the beginning of the show that Larry wrote his name on. And it's been gone. But it's now inside the banana, which is what's... Kimmy thought of earlier in the show, she named banana and that, and you're bringing it back, but in an mm-hmm. expected way. So whereas you're in your field, I think it's to reveal character in magic. I think it's to reveal plot.
1: Yes. And, and I don't say that to demean shock. I say it because shock is very powerful also, sure. but for me, it's like, you have to know when to use them and shock can be powerful in magic. You know, uh, I think sawing a woman half, you talk about it, the beginning of that is complete shock (laughs) you know right it doesn't nothing makes sense about this at all you know it's this unexpected like i I love when you talk about sawing a woman in half and how it first came about can you talk about
3: that the beginnings of that trick sure And And and
1: and the cultural aspects of it are very interesting yeah
3: yeah so so a few things about that first one is um as we sit here talking about it we have just celebrated truly i think four days ago was the 100-year anniversary since the first iteration of Sawing Through a Woman, which was the the original name of the the illusion by P.T. Selbit in London. And what you need to know about this trick to really um, understand the cultural implications is that people had been trying to devise illusions of what we call mutilation, decapitating Mm. somebody, putting the arms where the legs are, putting swords through people, But nothing caught on like sawing through a woman, which eventually would become sawing a woman in half, which would Uh travel throughout the world with various performers. What's interesting about this trick is all the things that had to come together to have it happen. So Mm. one of the things was fashion change. So right before this time, women wore hoop skirts, big Outfits that would come up to the collar and right. it, their shape was not revealed by their outfits. So they physically couldn't fit in a box. But all of a sudden, dresses became more form-fitting and all of a sudden it was possible. Also, this is right around the time women are campaigning for the vote. This is, right. this is a time of suffrage in the United States and in the UK. And so this is a time when women are both vulnerable, but also seen for the first time as Something equal, someone equal, people who had their own say. So this idea of sawing through a woman was, to some scholars, they thought, "Oh my God, a right? like a statement yeah. against women." And I'll another, show you. Right? For, for other <laughs> scholars, they see this as a liberating moment when, look, women are sawed in half but survive. Mm-hmm. So you can interpret that on either side of the coin, however you will. But what's certain is this. It touches a nerve because sawing a woman in half has a metaphorical value, and that is danger. Harming mm-hmm. somebody and restoring. It wow. isn't linking rings, making balls appear. It is making somebody's life at risk.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. The element of danger is very interesting in magic. What When you've talked to people, laymen, about magic like why do you think what do you think people like most about magic do they like to be fooled do they like to be thrilled
3: is it what is it that people why do people like magic i mean why people like magic of course is is entirely different some people sure. love to solve it some people love not to solve it and to live in the mystery but here's an interesting thing so i was part of the first study that was ever done in conjunction with the college of new jersey mm. scientific study For the benefit of magicians, there've been scientific studies about misdirection in the brain and the way we Mm -hmm. process information, but that was on magicians for the public. This is the opposite. Mm -hmm. And we asked more than a thousand people the question you just asked me, what do people like most about magic? And I was sure they were going to say being fooled or trying to figure out the tricks or Mm -hmm. laughing because there's a ton of comedy magicians or the feeling of astonishment. All those things tested very, very low, like less than 8%. Wow. The thing that overwhelmingly people liked about magic is being surprised. Some form of saying in their own words, not knowing what's coming next, Hmm. being totally surprised by what happens. They like the unexpected. And when I found that out, I totally reworked. My wow. entire show.
1: That's interesting. It's an emotional, not an intellectual thing.
3: Exactly. It right. is it's it is emotional and it's, and it's a sensation that's very different to what I thought they would say.
1: Okay, Josh, if you could, can you explain this whole connection between uh, science and magic a little more clearly? Like, you know, like I love the people trying to figure things out and what are some of the obstacles to that and the differences. If you have a trick to explain that, that'd be great.
3: Here's, here's an interesting study. This is a true study, by the way. It okay. came out of a uh, university in London. Um, they showed the same trick. That's important to two different right. people. The first group will call them the guessers. They just said, guess how the trick is done. Okay. okay.
1: Just, guess how just it's looking done. at it. Here's how I think That's it's it. done. Got it.
3: Second group, which is the same trick. They showed them the same trick. They said, we'll pay you $100 if you can tell us how this trick is done. And so my question for you is, which group guessed more accurately? The hundred dollar people or the guessers,
1: right? See, I think the hundred dollars. Once you have some money on the line, it's like I'm going to be watching like a hawk,
3: and that's what I thought too. I thought, I mean, I know magic people are polite; they go where you want you to go, they clap. But if you're paying them money, they don't fall for the misdirection. They're going to burn you, right? But it turns out that that's not the case. The guessers were more accurate, and the researchers think that that's because money distracts you. It makes you hone in too carefully on one on one thing and and you miss it when you're more relaxed when it's taking a test or watching a magic trick you tend to be more accurate so i thought we'd put this to the test larry i'm gonna give you the chance to win (laughs) oh no that was scary (laughs) i know i'm gonna give you the chance to win a hundred dollars if you can tell me how this trick is done okay And the trick is simple the trick is i'm going to vanish these four coins which okay. if you were here you would take a look at they're right. really just four coins
1: what are they half dollars or what are they
3: half dollars that's half all dollars. they are and okay. to keep us safe i'm going to put the money inside the purse okay so you can watch it the whole time all here right. we go
1: got it okay i see it all right it's in your hand
3: got it oh. now you didn't just see it you actually heard it
1: okay that third one, you know, people Whoa. say something people
3: say, Well, but I don't think the coins really go in the hand, so I'll let okay. you see all, all right. three coins. They really do go in the hand, okay. and if you were here, I would let you actually <laughs> touch them. All right, yeah,
1: so with you, so that's
3: all three, and now all four coins. And remember, okay. don't be distracted by the money, nope. But you see, you can't win the money because I've already... Wait a changed. minute. What? This is the $100 what? in my hands, which means that over here, where the money was supposed to be... Yeah. That's oh, crazy. Okay. Yes. Wait a second. No, no,
1: no. The, but the... How How man make... How man make quarters and... That's fantastic, Jen. Oh, so, thank you. very good, excellent. Oh my god, very good, Josh. So that's great.
3: It's a true study. I mean, that study is uh, you know something that came out of um, some university in London, and I read about it. And and so and, um,
1: people who could win that hundred did did worse than people who were like, okay, I'll try to figure it out. Unbelievably. Here's what I wanted to ask you about, too. So we've talked about magic and technology. There's also an area of magic and mysticism that is a cousin to magic and technology, I feel. Like, for instance, I always think of the connection between magic and religion, you know, of, uh, you know, I'm Catholic. And when I think about Catholicism, to me, is based on a couple of people that did magic tricks. (laughs) First, there was... Moses, who did a lot of magic tricks to get the Jews out of Egypt, good ones. I mean, it it's amazing. Good some of the best, arguably some of the best, you know. Right. Uh, and then Jesus, who kind of topped him, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, water the wine, walking on water, just some amazing magic tricks to start a whole new religion. Yeah,
3: he's got yeah. an ABC special coming
1: out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, I, I don't mean to diminish Christianity, but I'm just pointing out how the mystery of miracles and. The connection that people have to those mysteries, I think, is very related to the connection people have to that art of the mystery of magic.
2: Well, you
3: know, magic, we are so used to, in Western culture, seeing magic as a diversion, as something fun, that we forget the inherent power of magic. So, I mean, I always remember, you know, the first time I performed in Africa, I was in um, Tanzania. And I was performing a show. And afterward, somebody came up to me and, and, you know, if you're a magician, you work long enough, you'll have something like this happen. But this was the first time it happened for me. And he was really serious after the show. And he said, hey, look, that was a very good show. Can you come see my brother? He has an infection in his foot. and wow. I was wondering if he could heal him. Wow. And there's just so much to unpack there in that moment, because, you know, this is cards and coins. It's fun. Yeah. But to this person in that moment, you are somebody with real power. And of course, what you do with that power is a very serious ethical question. I Mm talked in the book about Yuri Geller and, you know, what he did with that power, claiming that it was real Right. Versus, you know, what I try to do, which is immediately diffuse the situation and say, look, I'm so sorry, brother's having trouble. I'm I'm not a real magician. I do this for entertainment. But, you know, it's just such a a vivid reminder of the power of of this craft.
1: Is there a problem with people saying they have real powers? Is that wrong or like are mentalism, mentalism for, you know, people is like, w- as magicians, we view it as another branch of magic, but for the lay person, it's, I don't know how much it's related to magic. It feels like something different. Like your mind is really being read and it's in a different category. Like also talking to the dead and that type of thing. It's more in that area.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's down to the performer. I happen to think it's wrong. I, I mean, First of all, I think mentalists spend so much time arguing amongst themselves about whether to use a disclaimer or not, whether to say, I do this for entertainment only, I can't talk to the dead, I can't contact your dead mother. But what's hilarious is most of those mentalists are nowhere near good enough to have their powers confused (laughs) for being real. They don't really need it. Their disclaimer is their act. Yeah. But um, no, I I think that anybody who is taking advantage of other people um, through the craft, that's a really scary place to be do you other than a
1: performer that does that we've had people in history that weren't really performers but you know people like Nostradamus you know right. people like that who have apparently connected to like other dimensions than that type of thing do you have an opinion on any of that stuff because my, I, I don't know where to put that I've I've been intrigued with that for years and years and I honestly uh, Edgar Casey was someone at the beginning of the last century who like would do these what we would call spirit writings, you know, and that yeah. type of thing like in in a like a sleep state and would tell people what was ailing them like he was a doctor or something. It's very bizarre.
3: Yeah, Yuri Geller I don't know what is,
1: category to put that in.
3: Well, yeah, I mean they're sort of in their own lane and Yuri Geller I think is chief among them, and, you know, to me the most amazing thing, I'm not old enough to have been around when he was in his prime of his power so to speak, but it's stunning to me that my parents grew up in an era where there was a guy, Yuri Geller yeah. who could bend spoons. And most I people, if you ask them on the street would not say like, Oh yeah, he's the entertainer. But they would say like, no, that's not a magician. That's like yeah. a guy who can read minds and stop watches and bend spoons with his mind. They thought he was real and he was just doing magic tricks, but yeah. <laughs> It, you know, in the 1970s, there was a magician so convincing that people thought he was real. And that says a lot, right? It says yeah. a lot about him and his ethical choices. And it says a lot about how easily the public is dissuaded. Remember, he went to a place called Berkeley Laboratories, which is not the same as Berkeley University. Mm-hmm. Um, but he went there and fooled scientists and had yeah. scientists vouching for him. This man can do things with his mind that no other people can I remember
1: Uri Geller. I was a... Teen at the time, and to me, I feel like the world was ready for Yuri Geller because we had had that was the the peak of conspiracy theory right <laughs> you know yeah, like that's true. the j f k assassination you know okay, like there were conspiracy theories for everything, and I think people were so willing to believe uh the most outlandish explanation for something, you know, I think he came around and kind of took advantage of that but but I remember him on the Tonight Show and uh you know people thought that stuff was real it was really and he presented yeah. it as real as opposed to a magic trick right
3: let me i'm um, i'm gonna get something i want to show you something uh, oh great to- oh
1: josh is gonna get something
3: you guys so i finally got to share a stage with uri geller in europe like i don't know 15 years ago does he still and- uh
1: pres is does he still perform and yeah. that type is of thing? He's
3: still around. He doesn't perform, but he'll make appearances. And, yeah. and he said to me, because I, I had written something about him, and, and he said, you know, I promised you I would bend you uh, a fork. So he goes and he grabs a fork. And truly, you know, this is we talked about this at the beginning, but a magician <laughs> being fooled by, yes. her, you know, he oh. is so good at wow. this one trick, which he created, that he wow. grabs this fork uh-huh. and he says, come over here. I want to show you something. He puts it in my hand. Yeah, he does this and he does this and here it comes and... Uh-huh. and he bends a fork for me. Wow! And he signs it. Uh huh. And he gives it to me, and I—I yeah. I mean, this is like—I mean, this is a cultural moment when he was doing this in the seventies. This is a Uri Geller bent fork. Is that it right there? This is it. Wow! And he, um, he go—they go on eBay for big money. And so this sat on my shelf on that sh- top shelf right there. Yeah, for a period of years. And then one day I come back from a trip and my the person who cleans my apartment is there, named Yanina and Yanina is and, and for some reason, I mean it's a small apartment so I know where everything is, <laughs> I know the Houdini right. handcuff, and I see <laughs> that, that fork is no isn't there. no And I said, Yanina, fork, it was right there. W- where is that fork? I I I'm sure it was there." And she goes, "Oh. Yeah. But it was all bent and it had dirt smudges on it. So I washed it off, straightened it out, and it's in the the washing. Very nice. So it took another meeting with Yuri Geller to tell him that story, for him to bend and sign another fork for me, which now goes behind glass so that it doesn't (laughs) get accidentally put in the dishwasher um, and cleaned out, which I thought was, was really a funny journey for a bent fork. Why do you think magicians
1: like to be fooled?
3: Well, I mean, I think that in some ways, magicians are the best audience for magic. In some way, they're the worst. If you've ever performed for a room full of magicians, you know that they can be both. Yeah. But, you know, magicians appreciate the artistry on on a couple different levels. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's not It's not so easy to appreciate a a magic trick in full remember as an audience layperson you are only seeing the tip of the iceberg there's so Mm -hmm. much beneath the surface that you don't see that hopefully is really amazing like for example i'll illustrate with another trick
1: great i just want to be fooled even though i do magic. i just want to be fooled josh
3: all right well let's try this many magicians will have you think of a card but i want you to think Of a pair of cards. So you can say, for example, red queens or black twos, whatever you want. What pair of cards would you like?
1: Oh, okay. Blackjacks. How about that?
3: Blackjacks. Yeah. As I go through the deck, I just want you to touch, and because you can't touch, you'll just call stop any card that you want as I go through them. Just say stop.
1: Okay, stop
3: right here okay my thumb is on this one but i can go to the next one or the one before it it's up to you
1: the one where it is right now right Right,
3: where it is right now if you touched a blackjack that would be a pretty amazing trick that would be amazing no no it is uh three of diamonds but that's okay at three of diamonds i'm gonna leave it where you put it okay but this is the trick that goes fairly into the deck right but if I now rearrange these there, these there, these there, this goes here, and put those around to there, now there are two cards surrounding that three that you no touch. You named a pair of cards, no and the way. cards you named, yes, are the black. <laughs> yes,
1: the blackjack Joe. Very good. I have no idea what just happened here. That was fantastic, very great. I love that trick. That's very nice. There you go. That's magic, you guys. Yeah. For most people, it fucking makes us mad. (laughs) I'm a magician. You know, it's interesting the way different audiences react to things. I think as magicians, we act with appreciation. You know, yeah. Like we go, oh, that's nice. Like as a comedy writer, many times when I see something funny, I go, oh, that's funny. As opposed to laughing. But that's how I laugh is by saying, Oh, that's funny. Many times, you know. It's it's yeah. a la- laugh appreciation and a magic appreciation, you know, which is nice.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean magicians appreciate it on a different, a whole different level, which is what makes it so hard to, to work for magicians because sometimes you're just wanting to show off a method, which is right. a weird thing to want to show off. Like, look how I'm doing this. Look yeah. how difficult this I'm doing it with with normal objects. That guy does it with trick objects. you know, yeah. something like that.
1: I love how in your book you say that children are the hardest to fool, right? It's true. Why is that?
3: Because children have no inhibitions, right? A child <laughs> is not going to be polite and say, oh, that's very nice. They're going
1: to go. It's in
2: your It's hand. in your other hand, <laughs> right? right, right, right. Uh,
1: what is your most memorable experience of being fooled?
3: So there's this magician who is absolutely incredible, and that's Juan Tamariz, And I'm sure oh, yeah. you know all about him. Um, He's from Spain. He's widely acknowledged as the greatest living magician. Yeah. He's
1: like this crazy professor. You guys, he's like this, he seems this old guy, he seems crazy with what he's doing, but somehow magic happens.
3: Amazing. He's completely amazing. And he, he fooled me one time with a trick where he started the way that I started with you, asking you to name a card and the card ends up in his shirt pocket, but you know, the normal ways I know it gets to a shirt pocket are not used here. And he's never <laughs> right. touching it. And he's always calling attention to his shirt pocket yeah. and it goes in the shirt pocket. And like, I'm eight years old again, totally fooled.
1: That is amazing. And you never forget those things. I love how you also mention in the book, you touch on other subjects too. Like uh, why aren't more women and more like blacks in magic, you know, and that type of thing as a young black kid growing up, you know, it's something that I never consciously thought, but I I do have an experience of just seeing that world and not seeing myself represented and and when I did start to see it it
3: really meant a lot you know Yeah yeah well I'm glad you said that I mean you know I I think that it's kind of two separate issues but there there for many 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 years were never any women sharing the stages with men in magic and the truth is that there actually were there were women, there were a lot of very noteworthy Black performers, but that the people telling the history of magic didn't include them. And I mean, one of the really wonderful things about researching this book was filling in those gaps and in those chapters, shining a light. I mean, and I'm learning all the time. You know, there's a, an author who I've now befriended who's from where I'm from in Ohio. He's in Columbus, Ohio. His name's Hanif Abdurraqib, and he wrote this book called A Little Devil in America. And in the middle of this book, which I just bought, I did not expect this. I just was reading it because he's an amazing writer. He just won a genius grant. He talks about Ellen Armstrong. I didn't know who Ellen Armstrong was. Ellen Armstrong was a second generation magician. Her dad was a great magician in the South, and she became a performer. She performed until great old age, like well into her 70s before she passed away. And she did amazing magic and mind reading, but totally off the grid like I was asking all my favorite magic historians they knew very little about her and he had uncovered this amazing performer so I tracked down a poster and a ticket stub and like learned all about her and there are these great stories Henry Box Brown a slave and slave person who mailed himself to freedom and he a magician
1: the most um, wait
3: I heard that story
1: but I didn't know he was a ma- he was actually a magician or he, he was did a magic. very
3: good magician. He wasn't just a magician, he was a really uh, accomplished magician when after he had made it to freedom. So but, but he I was mean, a slave. Yes. And mailed himself to freedom. You can't make it up. I mean if you made it's it up unbelievable. people would go, Too unbelievable. It could never happen. But yeah. they, I mean they need to make a movie about you need to write the movie about this no, magician
2: yeah. because I really I mean, yeah. this
3: is a story that needs to be told and yet you pull off any magic history off of this shelf and he's not in it. Black Herman's not in it, you know, uh, Adelaide Herman probably isn't in it. One of the great female magicians. And so what's it's, you know, it's both encouraging and discouraging that it's not that female magicians or black magicians didn't have a role or were excluded. Mm-hmm. They were there. They were doing yeah. incredible things. It just was never talked about.
2: Yeah,
1: it is encouraging to see magic flourish around the world in the hands of many different types of people who are so many approaches and excellence. The The Asian world has produced so many different types of brilliant uh, approaches to magic and that sort of thing. And many representatives, it's very exciting to see what comes from different regions of the world. You know, Spain has had a big uh, influence in magic for a period of time. You know, I feel like it clusters in different regions, you know? Yeah.
3: And I mean, magic just, looks different depending on where you are. People don't think yeah. about that. They know it about dance. They know that flamenco is different than salsa and yeah. samba and But they don't think about it with magic, but it's so true of magic. It's very different depending on where you are.
1: Yeah. Um, Do you think, uh, well, I really appreciate you being here. Your book is so interesting. So many different levels. Uh, uh, I just wanted to end on something maybe a little more philosophical. Do 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 we need magic in the world? And if the answer is yes, why do you think magic is important for us now?
3: I mean, to me, magic is more important now than it ever has been. But it's also harder to deliver great magic than it ever has been because Mm. technology is so advanced. But magic is that metaphorical reminder that we don't know everything and that sometimes it's okay to live in a space of not knowing.
1: I love that. I mean, Twitter has the opposite ethos. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) That I know
3: everything and I'm going to
1: tell you, Wow. You know, it's kind of surrendering in a way. Magic allows us to surrender. It's very powerful. With well, Josh Jay, everybody, uh, his book, How Magicians Think, uh, especially for those of you in magic, interested in magic, who like magic, or just, you know, want to read something that's a little different. How Magicians Think, uh, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. By the way, he reveals a couple of tricks in here. If you guys are like, I want to know how something's done. There's a couple of secrets revealed. A couple you things. Know. Respect, respectfully so. Yeah. Good luck with the book Josh and I hope to see you in person soon.
3: Yeah, that would be great. I would really love that. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for having me on. It's a real honor.
1: No, oh, it's my pleasure, Josh.